Hello, and welcome to the Back Issue Spotlight on the Comic Book Page Podcast. My name is John Mann. In this episode, we'll be having a spoiler-filled discussion about an older comic book storyline. In this back issue spotlight, I am joined by Eric, and we're going to be discussing Checkmate number one through six from 1988. Eric, how you doing tonight? I'm doing great, John. How are you doing? I am doing well. Now, I really enjoyed this series back when it came out. I don't know if I've reread it since, and it was no, 1988, so a few years ago. And high concept for listeners who may not know, because, I mean, they may be familiar with the more recent event Checkmate thing that Bendis did or whatever. Checkmate back in the day was kind of sort of the DC version of S.H.I.E.L.D. It was a super spy agency. And this group first appeared in Action Comics 598 before this series launched. I mean, like, right before this series launched. And for a while, it was kind of the go-to super spy agency in the DC universe. We've actually seen a version of it in live action. It was featured in uh, Smallville for a little bit. And... What I liked is not only the, the chess motif, I mean, checkmate, go figure. I mean, you've got the, the agents that are the knights, and you've got the, the rooks and the bishops that are kind of the leadership stuff, and the king and a queen. And what was cool is they had a white group and a black group. I think at one point, one was Intel, the other was Ops, or maybe at another point, because they've retooled the group a few times. They were just independent organizations to almost act as a check and balance against themselves. And in Smallville, they added a third group of red, and I don't know what chessboard they were using, but okay. Um, (laughs) But in their intervening decades, Checkmate kind of seemed to get pushed to the side and get replaced by Argus until Bendis kind of brought it back recently. And I don't know, Argus is okay. It's just had an inconsistent acronym the entire time, and I don't think it's anywhere near as cool as as Checkmate. So I was really excited that you were willing to kind of dig into these and and read them. Did you like them? Yeah. Oh, man. Yes, 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 yes. So let's see. These were were born in 1988. Mm-hmm. I was born in 1986. Oh wow! <laughs> and um, it it was not crib reading for me. Yeah. So I picked up periodic random issues. Never read the first six. Certainly never read them in order. Mm-hmm. And you know what I realized as I was reading them, for, you know, for the first time was that you know for 1988. And DC Comics, no less. This kind of pushed a few, shall we say, uh, boundaries. You liken Checkmate to Shield, and I agree with that. And I would almost say that some of the sequences, especially in the first three-issue arc, which is really kind of what it is, mm-hmm. almost played out in a similar tone to some of the Marvel Max stuff. I can see that. Yeah, both in language, in some of the, uh, you know knives into the hands and things like that. Like there was a lot less restraint on showing certain aspects of violence that you would normally have in DC comics period, but also mainline DC comics. And I found that to actually play really well into the tone and the stylings of these books. Yeah. And I mean, the cover of the first one, the the tagline is he doesn't fight the criminal element. He terminates it. Right. Which I think was a little harder core than this issue justified. That having been said, in that Action Comics issue that, that preceded this, there were 
two main things that Checkmate did there. One, one of the knights saves Lois's lane, because, oh, you know, they're the, they're the good guys. But they were, I forget, protecting some diplomatic person or whatever while he was in the U.S. The minute that guy flew out of U.S. airspace, they blew up the plane. <laughs> and the issue of Action Comics had Superman with Lois and a mushroom cloud in the background. So, I mean, they were definitely playing, this is a high-stakes super spy kind of a thing. And right. how they haven't turned this into a live-action TV show, man, I have no idea. You've got a, a full bodysuit covering the face and stuff, so putting stunt doubles in for the action sequences, boom, that's, that's easy and done. You've got a rotating cast of featured kind of knights and such, so you can give people breaks, you can have multiple plot lines going on, you're not tied into a key actor that the series would end if they quit or something happens to them or something. Right. And I think this level of, of super spidom really was everything I was kind of hoping Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. the TV show was going to be. So yeah, I thought this was, was kind of cool, and I didn't think it was an over-the-top, hardcore adult, mature, you know, whatever kind of Max thing, but it definitely had that tone and style while still being accessible to all ages, which I thought was a nice balance. I would, yeah, that first three-issue arc, though, I would definitely hesitate because of some of the language they used, especially in today's day and age, because they were, you know, dealing with essentially like what we would consider a neo-Nazi group today. And some of the language okay, that was okay. used was definitely above that of what I would say you're talking teen or teen plus. That's fair. That's fair. You're right. It's not all ages. And while there's no profanity or whatever, the level of racism, partic well, not particularly, but almost exclusively with the bad guys. Right. And they're very much, they're racist, they're bad equation, which I, I was fine with. Yeah, that's, yeah. I, can, I see what you're saying now. I was thinking of it along different lines than that part. And I think what, so like, I'm trying to think, there's really no cons or negatives that I have about these issues. So I can't really do a pro-con list. But to that end, one of the things that I really, really, truly enjoyed was, yeah, some of that language was a little off color from what is, you know, acceptable modern day language. But like everything else, it's a period of time and it represents mm -hmm. that period and to your point the bad guys are saying and doing bad things we expect that that's why they're bad guys right and so it fit the story it wasn't used gratuitously and every time there was some of that off-color language there was a counterpoint to it and i think if you were to take that out like you could not you could not publish this comic today in dc comics it would not be allowed at least not with the language that it has in it. And I think that's to DC Comics' detriment. While I do think we need to be careful and aware of what we're saying and what we're doing, I think you lose the context in the story without some of the real-life realities that there are. And that was one of the things that, yes, this has kind of got that super spy, it's a little beyond what's normal, but in a sense, a lot of these stories that, you know, these first six issues, they're a lot more relatable than regular traditional superhero comics. Yeah. They're, you know, and, and that makes it even more powerful when you can put yourself in the story and say like, oh yeah, I could, I could see this happening around me. I've read enough, uh, you know, history books. I've heard enough stories that I could hear these things being said. You know, I could see some of these things happening. These, these events take place in Chicago, New York, Wyoming, Dallas, you know, like Venice, 
these are real places. So you can not only can you connect yourself with the individuals, you can connect yourself with the dialogue, but you can also connect yourself with the locations. And I think all those things added together really make it an enjoyable read. Yeah. Yeah. No, I thought they did a really good job with it in terms of telling a more, I was going to say nuanced, but I think sophisticated is the better term here. Because while we're dealing with, you know, a group of white supremacists that want to, you know, secede and form their own little state and such, they are so clearly the bad guys. And the only other time in this that we get a racial kind of term used by one of the good guys, it was in a mocking, self-deprecating manner in terms of that. He knows that's the term the white supremacist would have referred to him as. And he gets called out on it by his handler, who's like, she's like, yeah, I'm not comfortable with that. And, you know, I know how you were using it, kind of, you think it's okay to say that about yourself sort of a thing, but she's like, it's not right, don't do it. Yep. So there's no ambiguity as to who the really bad guys are, and with the good guys, they are good guys, but yeah, they're they're not pulling their punches, and they know there's a lot at stake for what they do. I also found it interesting how they brought in a couple of characters that had been around the DC Universe before and certainly had been around it afterwards. We've got Amanda Waller, who is the boss of the guy running Checkmate. Harry T. Stein, I think, is the guy running Checkmate. I don't know that he's done a yep. whole lot or used a whole lot after this. But, of course, one of the guys in the organization at the, the management level is uh, Harvey Bullock from Gotham City. Yep. And, I, you know, he's a longstanding character and whatnot, so that was a lot of fun. And what I loved is in this first issue, they do such a great job. And some of it's through exposition, you know, Harvey's got to go give somebody a tour. So let me explain how everything works. You know, the field directors are rooks, the bishops are the chiefs, Harvey's a bishop. So, you know, that's great. And all that kind of stuff. We've got the, the field agents, they're the knights, we got pawns, they're the cleanup, the support people and stuff like that. But we actually get to see these kinds of people in play in the storyline. Right. And the pawn that we feature here shows up as the backup feature lead in issues, what, four through six. Right. As he's training to become a knight, which I thought was pretty cool. And particularly when I first read it, it's like, okay, you've got a, you know, support character, and now he's potentially going to become a lead later in the series. How cool is that? You just don't see that that often. Mm -hmm. And some of this stuff, specifically Blackthorn, and I forget if it was Harvey Bullock and or Harry Stein, they came out of the Vigilante series, which spun out of New Teen Titans, and it went for 50 issues and stuff, and it was, I think, ended just before this started, hence transitioning a couple of the characters over. Okay. And that's another one that, if you want a more harder-hitting kind of, of DC book from the 80s, I would recommend. Okay. It definitely deals with some heavy issues, particularly at the end, but you've got what was coming out of, of New Teen Titans, a, you know, traditional superhero fair, a guy who decides to literally take the law into his own hands, and he was, I don't want to say diametrically opposed to Batman, but where Batman wouldn't use a gun, this guy very much did. But he was doing it for the right thing, and, and again, trying to uphold the law in his own way, and was, I don't want to say their version of the Punisher, because he wasn't, but more along those lines than, again, typical superhero fair. Okay. So I think that was one of the things that set the, the stage for this kind of a super spy title, is they'd already done things with, you know, a bit more of a, a an edge to them. 
but yeah, I, I think this is a ton of fun. I love the the costume design, uh, which is not you know crazy sophisticated or complex or whatever, but it's cool looking. It worked for me. And again, the fact that there's potentially 30 of these dudes running around and nobody realizes outside of the organization, there's maybe more than just the one night. It was kind of interesting. Right. And I, I like how all the different roles have different rules. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're in the costume, you're not supposed to talk because they don't want to, they, the reason you're in the costume is so they can't identify you. Mm -hmm. So they don't want people to hear your voice. They don't want to hear your speaking mannerisms. And I thought that was kind of clever. And then you've got, you know, all of the pawns and their various requirements and what they need to do. And, and then it, it's like any super spy thing, you know, of course, they're trying to sort of stay out of the purview of the local police. Yeah. So they're in and out before the cops come. And, you know, it's it. So there's just a lot of fun action going on. And I, I, I don't know, I, I guess I'm one of those people where it's not just the, the content, but it's everything that makes it makes a comic for me. And I love the colors. I love the art style. It's, it's that typical 80s style. And it just jumps off the page. It's fun. The action sequences are big and action actiony. You still get all of the, you know, the foosh, the kaboom, all of that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And I, for me, I, I like that. And I think in the first couple of issues, I can't remember if there were any in the latter issues that of this first six, but the I know in the first three issues, there were editor notes like, oh, I should have gone back and read this. And, you know, oh, this happened over here. And, and I miss those things because, yeah. you know, they, it's almost like nowadays the assumption is made that you're consuming everything that comes out. Well, not just consuming it, but memorizing it. Right. I, I don't even remember what I did this morning. So how they expect me to remember, you know, what happened tangentially six, uh, six issues ago and, you know, the back... The third story in some book, I don't know. Yeah. And so I like those editor notes. I mean, it's just, it's it's all there. I also, like we talked about the costumes, we talked about the characterizations. I like the mix of different scenarios and situations that were going on. Mm -hmm. You've got military situations. You've got kind of the good old boys in Texas. You know, that kind of rumbles going on, like I said, in Venice. And it was easy to get into all of those different scenarios, the art made it super easy the way that it was written made it easy you know they, they yeah. were throwing in the local quote-unquote jargon i guess and it just made it feel so easily accessible and i like that i really really like that yeah well it was one where they didn't expect you to spend your life putting together a, a doctoral thesis on who these people are and what's going on they keep it accessible they keep it fun they do some very classic action adventure sorts of storytelling things. Uh, the end of issue two was very much a dictionary definition of a cliffhanger kind of an ending, making it seem like, oh, well, the knight died, but they've got plenty, so who cares? And you come back, and just like a traditional cliffhanger works, you rewind just a little bit, go back through that last scene of the previous installment, and you realize, oh, this is how the hero didn't actually die. And they play fair, you know? Yep. So I thought that was cool. Again, they've got some great action sequences. They've got uh, to your point about uh, some stuff over in Venice and whatnot, there's an internationality of the story, which again, super spy stuff we expect. And I thought that was kind of cool. And between issues three and four, after that, you know, with the change of the story arc, we changed knights that were featuring. It was Gary Washington, who'd been uh, Harry Stein's partner in the NYPD for six years. For the first arc, second arc, we get Winston Churchill O'Donnell. Very different kind of a guy. 
Yep. And we follow him for a bit. Yep. And then by the time we get to issue six, we've got yet another knight, and I don't even think he was named in that issue. I I didn't see it. And that was one set in the desert, and again, giving that international flair of it and different locale, different sorts of things going on. Yep. So they did some fun stuff. Um, and actually, in issue five, we had Jake Tyler, a former Texas Ranger, who was a very lone wolf kind of character, which, you know, at one point we get the higher-ups in the organization talking about it. It's like, well, we knew it. It's like, yeah, do we want this? Do we not? You know, what type of people are they recruiting for these knights? Right. And there's just, yeah, a ton of fun stuff going on here. And this level of super spy action-adventure stuff, I think, has been sorely missing in the DC Universe, really kind of since this volume ended. The organization stuck around for a little bit, but I'll be honest, I don't know how many times we'd seen any of the Knights of Checkmate after this volume. Because after that, they started to either involve metahumans or talk more about the upper echelon of the group versus the people actually doing the, the field missions and such. But granted, it's been ages since I've read the Checkmate stuff after this series, and none of it really worked for me as well as, as this volume did. I thought this was just a ton of fun. And Paul Cooperberg, who wrote this, this was around the time it felt like he was writing about half the DC Universe with the cross-continuity benefits you get out of having one writer doing so much. And he doesn't get, I think, anywhere near enough credit for what he's done because he created quite a few characters, told a ton of great stories, but never seems to get listed as one of those A-list writers, but I think he's more than just a kind of a journeyman writer and such. He, he did some great stuff, and this is, to me, definitely some of it. Yeah. That makes me remember, did I see John Byrne's name in the credits in the first issue? Did I mention that this came out of Action Comics? And Do you know who was doing Action Comics at the time? Yeah, I just, I found it interesting that he was credited on the first issue, not credited as a writer, and then not credited on anything after. He was credited as co-creator of the group. Yeah, I guess I was just expecting a little more panage. Because, again, he did that Action Comics issue where the group first showed up. Right, right. And having them show up at a Superman title and then spinning them off into their own, not a bad move. Yeah, it's interesting, because on the cover of the first issue, it's Coverberg, Irwin, and Vey. Mm-hmm. Which is the writer, penciler, and inker of the issue, yeah. But Correct. then, inside, under the Checkmate logo on the title page, created by Paul Cooperberg, John Byrne, and Steve Irwin. Yep, there we go. Yeah. Good times. Yeah. No, this was, again, a ton of fun, and... While it's a super spy organization, you don't look at it and think, oh, it's just shields with different costumes. It's got a very different feel to it. Right. Yeah, these were super fun. And the great thing is, if people want to read them, obviously, uh, as you know, uh, we just recently moved to a different house, and so all of my stuff is packed away. Mm -hmm. So I opted to go digital to read these. Not my preferred reading method, but, you know, desperate times, desperate measures. But these are not expensive issues to get. You know, a lot of times they'll be yeah. in back issue bins, you know, a dollar, maybe $2. And sometimes if you hit a sale, you know, just right, you can get them for as low as a quarter. And they're great reads. They're they're worth it. I like the, I'm always a fan of wanting to actually feel like I've gotten my money's worth out of something. Mm -hmm. And the stories in these issues are, I don't know if dense is the right word, because that almost makes it sound impenetrable, but there's a lot of meat on the bone. Yeah. without feeling excessive and like, oh, gosh, am I almost done with this? So I really enjoyed the the overall presentation and package. 
Now, I will say that 1988 was a much wordier time in comics. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when we get to in the first issue where Harvey and, and Blackthorn are walking around and such, there's a lot of words on that page. Right. So don't go picking it up thinking it's just going to be a, a light, breezy read. There's a ton of substance in this book, and some of the way they do that is through dialogue. Yep. Some of it's through captions. Some of it's just through great storytelling. But it's cool when, when you've got some of these hidden gems that were really good reads back in the day, but not wildly popular and not widely regarded as something you should go seek out. So to your point, you can find these in the back issue bins for good deals. They may not be the simplest thing to find, but they're out there to be had. Uh, and when you can find them, they're not that expensive. Yeah. Yeah, and because these stories are grounded in more real-life scenarios and real-life locations, they almost stand a test of time better than some of the other stories that were out there, partially because they aren't you know, overwritten or, or retconned as much, because like you said, they weren't the top sellers, they weren't the attracting all the attention, mm -hmm. and so they can be somewhat forgotten, but also because they're grounded in the real world, you can't, like, you can't retcon Chicago. You can't, you know, there's, there's certain things you just can't do. And I think that that lends itself nicely to these stories aging very well. Yeah. These sorts of super spy adventures and the, the threats they're going up against made as much sense in the late 80s as they would have in, say, the 60s for the most part or today. Yep. You know, it's got enough of the James Bond feel to it with, you know, a little bit of, of you know, brightly colored spandex to, to make it fit more of the comic book expectations. Right. So, yeah, I thought this was a, a ton of fun. At some point, I may go back through and reread the rest of the series. And as I recall, it near the end, it had the Janus Directive, I think it was, where it crossed over with Suicide Squad. And I want to say a third title. I just don't remember that what that would have been off the top of my head. But this would have been around the time Task Force X, the Suicide Squad, was starting up, give or take a few years. I don't remember the exact timing on it, but... And it's... 33 issues for the first volume, mm -hmm. and I don't even know if these are, I don't know if this has been collected, certainly not recently. I think they've tried to collect it a time or two. I don't know that they actually got it collected. Yeah. Which is such a shame, because again, it's something that stands the test of time, I think, and I think they could, they could definitely drum up some interest in it if they just got it out, you know, made it accessible again. Yeah, I know Rucka's run has four trades, but mm -hmm. I don't think this original one has any. Well, I think part of it for this era of comics, particularly at DC, the way they were doing, I forget if it was royalties or something like that, makes it a little harder to collect these and make it financially viable. The story lengths vary. Again, we had a three-issue arc. There's some of these that feel more done-in-one-ish, although not totally self-contained, uh, but satisfying mm -hmm. in one at least. So finding good ins and outs, I think, can be a little trickier. And again, it's not a property that's been used over and over again, so there's a little less demand to, to go collect it. Right. But if you don't collect it, you're not going to build up the demand for it. So go figure. And yeah, it's not available. Uh, it makes it hard for people to consume. Yeah. This is the kind of thing, if it were a Marvel property, I would expect to see a Disney Plus series on it before too long, just because, again, it's a hidden gem and lends itself to live action, I think, particularly on a TV kind of the cadence, if you've got the right stunt team and whatnot. I just don't know that DC is really that kind of 
aggressive these days, particularly with the CW shows winding down, on getting their stuff into to TV stuff. Yeah, and, and, you know, not to bash too hard on DC, but I don't know as if they would do justice to this. And And what I mean by that is not that they wouldn't have good writing or good actors and actresses. It's just everything, not everything, the bulk of what DC seems to be doing right now just is all so dark. It's yeah. dark, it's gloomy, it's dingy, and that just won't work for some of this content. You know, I, they're out in the sun in the daytime, and there's scenes where they're at night, and they're underground, they're in buildings, and I don't know, I, I just, I have such a hard time with all the DC comics that I've I've consumed, and so much of it being about hope and light, and, and it's just everything they put on screen is so dark and dingy and negative. It just feels like they're like embracing a depressive kind of mood and I wish that they wouldn't. Mm -hmm. Well, and there are a lot of ways that you could try to resurrect this property, be it in comics, TV, film, whatever, and go pretty wrong with it pretty easily. Oh yeah, for sure. You know, reusing the checkmate name yet really having none of the checkmate organization itself in it with, with Bendis's more recent run didn't sit great with me. I mean, it was an okay read, but when you get a couple of, of justice leaguers and a few other people involved as, you know, claiming they're the best detectives on the planet and stuff, and that's Checkmate. And it's like, uh, no, it's not. <laughs> but that's just yeah. what I think. Yeah, and, and it was kind of fun, too, how they how they trained all mm-hmm. of their... It almost had like a, a Men in Black vibe at times, where there was kind of like this secret training organization and a secret layer that had all the communication. And there was, you know, a few jokes thrown here and there, but not like the hyaka hyaka... Mm-hmm. You know, kind of things like little little one-liner barbs at each other, like you know, good coworkers, good friends that are coworkers will do, and just the tone of it was just lovely. Yeah, yeah. So I think what we're saying is, if people are looking for something really good to read, yeah, potentially on a budget mm-hmm. and like a little bit of you know real world esque feel that they can you know they can see the real world in it, this would be a really good choice. Yeah, if you want something that's a, a super spy superhero mishmash or whatever uh certainly if you're going to conventions and you see a lot of back issue boxes this is the kind of thing i think it'd be fun to go hunt for you're not going to be spending a lot of money but i think you're going to get some good quality stories out of it yeah yeah and these like i said there was meat on the bone i mean it took some of the comics i think we read nowadays it's like you know less than 10 minutes and you consume the whole thing oh yeah these these issues to really get everything out of it you're you're pushing 15 20 minutes by the time you Take it all in and, and you know, follow through the, the plot lines and take a look at the art and everything, which is, I think, great because that's, that's value for your dollar. It takes longer to read, but it doesn't feel like it takes longer to read. Right. That, to me, is the key difference. I've read a few others that took five minutes, but it, it seemed like an hour. Yeah. In all the wrong ways. Right. <laughs> Whereas this, for yeah. me, it was easy to go from issue to issue to issue, even as the story was changing, even as the lead character of which night we were following was changing, you know, and there are some other times where I'm reading a, a six issue arc of a character, a story. I mean, not just the same title, but literally chapters of the same arc. And I get a little ways through. It's like, yeah, you know, maybe I'll, I'll go do something else for a little bit now and come back to it or something. <laughs> I need a palate cleanser. Uh, or just, you know, something a little more entertaining at the moment. I don't know, you know? Yeah, for sure. It's, it, this didn't have any of that problem for me. And part of that is, you know, I'll admit there's some nostalgia here. I read it was when it came out and I enjoyed it then. 
but I was also very glad that reading it now, and I'm a different person than I was back in 1988, absolutely, it held up well for me. Yeah. So I was happy with that. Awesome. Anything else? No, I think that's it. Cool. Recording clips for the preview Spotlight episodes is easy, and we've got an open submission policy for these episodes. Please send in clips to support the comics you love as often as you can. If you'd like to get email reminders for the preview Spotlight episodes, you can join the emailing list on the main page of the comicbookpage.com website. The deadline is typically the second Saturday of the month at 9 a.m. Check the main page of the website for more information and the exact deadline for the next preview Spotlight. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.